All right, our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is in the NIV. <clears throat> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wondrous signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. Good morning, Mesa Church family. So good to see all of you. Great to be back here after being out a couple of weeks. A couple things as we get started this morning. First, um, for those of you who do not know Ken, who shared communion thoughts this morning, let us all be sure to join in prayer that God will help him overcome his shyness. Uh, so, <laughs> what a great asset to the kingdom of the Lord. Amen. He's just a wonderful brother. Wonderful brother. Um, also, I'll give you one hint about your candidate. He lives in the United States. I'll even give you a little bit more. He lives in the continental United States. So narrowed it down there a little bit. It's going to be really exciting next Sunday when you get a chance to start the process of getting to know your finalist. And as CR said, hope that you see in him what the search team and the elders have seen. And it's going to be a great, going to be a great season of celebration these next many weeks as we just, uh, I, I hope and pray, stand in awe of what God uh, has done and what he is doing and what he will continue to do in this place. Uh, I'd like for us to uh, pause this morning just for a moment and pray, and, and specifically what I would like to ask you to pray about with me uh, are our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Uh, I've been blessed to be able to travel to Ukraine uh, three times in the last four years and work with ministries there who are ministering to uh, orphaned children and also some church planters in Ukraine who are working there. And these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and um, many of whom have already been displaced once. Several of them lived in Donetsk, and Russia came in and invaded there several years ago. They literally had to leave their homes without their possessions, and they're possibly facing that again. So I just want us to pray for them this morning. You may not know a whole lot about Ukraine. Uh, it's a beautiful place, one of the most lush places on the planet. Some of the most amazing produce, fruits, vegetables are there because the soil is so rich uh, and the people uh, are very kind and generous. So if you'll join me in praying for them this morning, then we'll get into our lesson. God, thank you for the blessing of the day. Uh, Lord, we lift the people of Ukraine up to you. Uh, this morning, we know there's lots of saber-rattling going on and world leaders who are acting quite worldly. And God, we would ask that you would intervene and that you would protect uh, the people of Ukraine, Father, and that cooler heads will prevail and that a crisis can be averted. Father, we uh, know uh, that Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all. And so no matter, Father, what happens, we trust you in all things. And we trust the supremacy of Christ above all other powers. But we do pray, Lord, that you would protect 
specifically protect our brothers and our sisters in Ukraine. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So we're in a series on discipleship, and I want to take some time today just to remind you of a few things that we've discussed and introduce a few new things to you as well. A couple of Sundays ago, we began with the Matthew text. We're going to revisit that text this morning in just a bit. As a quick reminder, we've defined a disciple as someone who follows Jesus, and that's making a decision. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. That leads to uh, head change and heart change. We are changed by him, and we are on mission with him. And that's serving with our hands and our feet and our other resources. And a question that I just want to pose this morning is, how do we make disciples? How do we do that? Well, before we answer that question, I want to present to you a little bit of insight. And uh, this comes from um, a couple of authors named Breen and Cockrum. They wrote a book several years ago called Building a Discipling Culture. And it's a fascinating Um, bit of insight that they provide. I'll share this with you. You can follow along on screen. The problem is, and we've asked the question here, how do we make disciples? They reply, the problem is that most of us have been educated and trained to build, serve, and lead the organization of the church. Most of us have actually never been trained to make disciples, and they're particularly talking about um, people who are in ministry, but also people that we have trained to do ministry. Seminary degrees, church classes, and training seminars teach us to grow our volunteer base, form system, and organizational structures, or preach sermons on Sunday mornings and assimilate newcomers from the Sunday service. But as we look around, as Christendom is crumbling and the landscape of the church is forever changed, a stark revelation emerges. Most of us have been trained and educated for a world that no longer exists. However, the call to make disciples still remains. It never wavers. It never changes. Make disciples. So if we commit to being disciple makers, then there are several elements of disciple making that we've got to consider. As I said two weeks ago, no carpenter begins a house without a set of plans and without the right tools to build that house. And so we talked a little bit about some elements to consider as part of your disciple-making toolbox. It's not an exhaustive list, as I've said before, but it's one that's offered by uh, authors called Patrick and Harrington, who wrote a book called The Disciple-Maker's Handbook. Highly recommend that resource. They have a very high view of Scripture, um, and they're not Pollyanna in their approach. It's very uh, scriptural, but also very practical. The elements that we mentioned a few weeks back, uh, weeks ago, you can see those up on screen. Uh, we talked a little bit several weeks back about Jesus and the Bible, and particularly uh, how Scripture shapes us as disciples and how we use Scripture to engage others in the discipleship journey. We started talking two weeks ago about intentionality and relationality. And I want to take a little bit of time today just to review the text that we presented a few weeks back from Matthew chapter 4, just a refresher on intentionality and relationality, and then I want to share a few more things with you this morning. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18, we read, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. You may remember as we reflected on this text a couple of Sundays back, I made mention of what many followers of Jesus want today. And it seems to be that we are more often than we should be about what we want. The disciples of Jesus then were much more about we will. We will follow you. I gave you a couple of examples of the difference. Let's look at a couple of additional contrasts just to show you the difference between being a we want believer in Jesus and a we will disciple of Jesus. We want might sound like nobody checks up on me. We will. I am checking up on others. We want. We need to be talking more about what if we turned that into an action verb and became a we will community who listens. We want. It might sound a lot like this. My voice deserves to be heard. But a we will church, I think, embraces I want to help others hear the voice of God. I mentioned two weeks ago that you are becoming, I believe, more and more of a we will church. And I want you to hear very clearly as we go into our lesson today, I am not asking you in this sermon to do more. I'm not asking you to fill your calendars with more activity. I'm asking you to be more. Not to do more, but to be more. To fill your hearts with deep capacity for broken people as you live into your mission through the power of the gospel to help others grow in Christ, serve and love, and ultimately be equipped for life. I want to briefly revisit two keys that are present in Matthew 4 um, in Jesus' invitation to be a follower, to be a disciple, and I think they're foundational to successfully making and growing disciples. And that's intentionality and relationality. This should look familiar. We presented these a couple of Sundays ago, but I just want to remind you about what intentional discipleship making looks like. Intentional disciples are people who survey the landscape. We have an understanding of what's happening in culture. We have an understanding of what's happening in our own community of faith. And we see the intersection of possibilities. We're purposeful about looking for opportunities to engage people in the life-changing message and good news of Jesus Christ. Intentional disciples connect with people. We're not the type of people who become exasperated quickly when people are in our way. We're actually people who look for opportunities to serve and to be the hands and feet of Jesus to those we come in contact with. Not only are we trying to connect with people, but we're trying to connect people to other people. And so if you meet someone who has a passion or they're, they're on a pathway to try to get to a particular place in life, or maybe they're having a particular struggle, think about others that you know in this body who have been there, done that, and see if there's some opportunity for connection so that we can continue to cultivate that soil of the good news of Jesus. I think intentional disciples also build or at a minimum contribute to a growth environment. And that means that we are so much more about others than we are about self. 
Disciples are also going to be highly relational. We're more than just being together about one weekly worship assembly. Jesus did not say, follow me once a week, right? Take up your cross one day a week, one hour a week. He said, take it up daily, daily, and follow me. We are very real. We're very transparent. I appreciate it so much when I hear someone say, this is where I was. This is what Jesus saved me from. Now, we don't all have to have one of those testimonies, you know, if I can use that word this morning, that shows the, the pit of despair and, and being delivered to this other place. But a lot of us have been in that pit, right? A lot of us have been. And we rejoice at what Jesus Christ has done. That means that we are people who are authentic. You know, we don't sound pious so much as we are pious. Are you with me? Does that make sense? We don't have to fill our vocabulary with a lot of religious words. It's much more important that we live the character of Christ in our, in our personal relationship with him and in our relationship with other people. And I think we are also much more about people than we are about process. Process is important. But at the end of the day, it's going to be people who are going to stand before the Lord when this life is over, right? Not a process that stands before the Lord. So it's important to make a shift to intentional relational discipleship. And this contrasts in some ways to educational discipleship. And educational discipleship was very, very effective for many years. Parts of educational discipleship is still very effective. However, the world receives and processes information differently now. So as a result, we have to be creative in how we intentionally pursue relationship opportunities with those who don't know Jesus. Now, I want to go back to Patrick and Harrington because they share a wonderful table that highlights some of the differences between educational discipleship and intentional relational discipleship. So just follow along with me on screen here for just a bit as we kind of contrast these two. And by the way, when I looked at this list for the first time, I just had these amazing light bulbs going off in my head. There's some generational differences here, and they're not good, and they're not bad, but they do provide some great points of reference. Educational discipleship requires attention to Scripture. Intentional relational tends to be more about a personal relationship pointed to Jesus. Now hang on to this, and remember, these are not absolutes. These are not absolutes, okay? Just talking about some principles. Scripture and the Holy Spirit under educational. Scripture, the Spirit, and relationships, the context of community. Educational typically is a little bit more about the head. Intentional relational is a little more holistic in nature. It's about the head, the heart, and the hands. There can be a major academic focus on the educational side, but on the intentional side, it's a little bit more about teaching and modeling and coaching. There can be a major emphasis on factual knowledge on the educational side, but on the intentional side, it's a little bit more about emphasizing life application. The list continues. We see information contrasted with transformation. Content compared to supportive relationships. No breaking of bread, not in the Lord's Supper context, but in the dining together, eating together, sharing a cup of coffee together. Uh, there's a start and a stop time that's, you know, pretty regimented. Sometimes we want to we kind of get there quickly. 
But in the intentional side, it's more about purposefully sharing meal together, meeting in homes possibly, sometimes maybe even daily, taking time. In the educational model, the teacher has all the answers. In the intentional relational model, hey, let's figure this thing out together. Finally, large group tends to be more true for educational discipleship. Small group tends to resonate more in intentional relational discipleship. The emphasis can be on the building or the campus. In the intentional model, it's typically more about the home. Lesson is the agenda under educational, doing life together and intentional. The setting is formal, typically, in an educational model. In an intentional relationship model, the setting is more casual. Now, you have to understand, again, these are not presented in terms of absolutes. These are just some principles to consider. And I appreciate the author's humility as they write these words. They make this observation. um, We understand that in contrasting these two approaches, we are drawing out the extremes. Um, But we think it's important to point out that these contrast because the educational model has been dominant for so long. Now, here's what you need to understand. I think it's important to note that any framework can be pushed to unhealthy extremes. I think we are better off to think in terms of both and. I think there's room for both. I think there needs to be an emphasis on education, but there must also be an emphasis on relationships. Has to be. There has to be because the world processes information differently. When I was 21 years old and I took my first job, I knew that I had to, in essence, take a few years to climb the corporate ladder, okay? It was going to take time. Today's 21-year-old starts the job on Monday and wants to know if they can be supervisor by Friday, okay? I mean, it's a different world. It's just a different world. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just, it's just a different way to approach how we do life. And so we, as the body of Christ, have to understand our audience. And we have to be willing, I hope and I pray, to think a little bit creatively about how we're going to engage in conversation and ultimately, hopefully, transformation for those that we want to share good news with. What does this mean for us? Well, I want to offer today one of the most immediately actionable sermons that I've preached here. And it makes no difference about your age. Um, if you are in junior high or if you are in the I can't even jump that high group anymore, it doesn't really matter. Every follower of Jesus can do what I'm going to describe this morning. And here it is. You can form a discipleship group. A discipleship group. Now that may be a new term to you. Don't panic. Amazing Grace was a new song at one point. Okay. Um, Church buildings, that was a new concept decades after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And the list goes on and on. What I'm going to share with you in the next few minutes is not the tool for discipleship. Hear those words. It is not the tool for discipleship, but it is a tool for discipleship. And it's one that I hope you'll not just consider, but I would encourage you, as a matter of fact, I will challenge you to consider implementing this individually and collectively. And so what I want to share with you is this, a five-step process for forming discipleship groups 
and then looking back at our text for this morning to see how we see this play out in the ministry of Jesus himself. Here are the five steps at a glance. Listen and watch, recruit or invite, prepare, engage, and release. So let me give you just a quick snapshot of what these stages look like lived out in the body of Christ. Listen and watch. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is to listen to God and look for where you see him working. And I'm talking about in the context of relationships. Who is God putting in your pathway? Who is God introducing you to? Whether it's a random encounter with a first-time guest or someone that you've met via a friend, how is God working? Think about the ministry of Jesus. If we go back to Matthew chapter 4 and look at a, a few verses prior to this first invitation to disciples to follow him. And I pulled a few verses together here, verse 1, verse 11, verse 17, pulled a few bits and pieces from each of these. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then we know what happens, right? The three interactions between Satan and Jesus. Then the devil left him, and the angels came, and they attended to him. And we have these beautiful Old Testament references, and then we get to verse 17, and we read, and from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that's the backdrop for today's text. You see what happens? Jesus listens to God, and he watches God provide before he calls his first disciples. Patrick and Harrington note, this is the step that most people skip. But it is by far the most important aspect of forming a discipleship group. So what do we do first? We just pray. We watch. We listen. Who is God putting in my path? Whose path is God putting me in? And so I'm growing in my conscious awareness of how the Spirit is at work in the discipleship journey. The second phase is to recruit or to invite, and I call this living out your mission, living out the mission of the Mesa Church of Christ. And this step results from our prayers, from our time of listening, and from our time of watching. We read earlier in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So when God leads you to four or five others, and that's about the right size for a discipleship group, uh, probably four or five, maybe as many as six people, you need to intentionally start thinking about testing the waters of a deeper walk. Many, many Sundays ago, I told you about a good friend of mine now. His name is Josh. Josh was visiting our church one Sunday. And I had served communion, and I saw this guy, and I'd never seen him before. And so I walked up behind him, and I tapped him on the shoulder, and he seriously jumped like eight inches out of the pew. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like it. 
And I said, oh, I'm really sorry about that. I didn't mean to startle you. And I just said, hey, I don't think I met you. What's your name? And he said, I'm Josh. And I said, man, I said, uh, I'd really like to get to know you a little bit better. Any possibility we could connect for lunch or coffee this week? And he said, oh, that would be great. So I said, hey, here's my card. Here's my cell number. Uh, let's touch base early this week. And now three something years later, he and I are very, very close friends. We've been in multiple valleys together. We've been on some peaks together. But God, I believe, not chance, not chance, not luck, I believe God convicted me on that Sunday morning in that time, tap that brother on the shoulder. Tap him on the shoulder. And God has done some amazing things. And I believe he'll do the same thing with you. The third step is to prepare. You've prayed, you've watched, you've listened, you've reached out to three or four, possibly five people, and you have, have shared with them, hey, I'm putting this little group together. We're going to walk together for a while, about six weeks, seven weeks, maybe as much as eight, and we're going to, this is where you have to prepare. We're going to read through the Gospel of, uh, of John, or maybe we're going to read through the letter of First John. And we're just going to see what Scripture tells us. Or I'm really wanting to work on one of the spiritual disciplines. So we're going to get together for six weeks and we're just going to pray. Or we're going to read about prayer, talk about prayer. Or we're going to read about fasting. Maybe you don't want to start with fasting. That's a pretty heavy for uh, the first discipleship journey. Uh, especially if you're going to be eating together, that would kind of defeat the purpose, right? But uh, we're going to choose some, some topic, some text, and we're just going to dwell in that for about six weeks. So you're preparing your group for the discipleship journey. I love this when we think about the ministry of Jesus. Just consider a couple of verses as you think about how Jesus prepared his disciples. This then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Matthew 6, 9. Then he told them many parables, Matthew Thirteen three, When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Luke 19, 37. Do you see how Jesus prepared his disciples? Not just for the kingdom that was, was there embodied in him, but for the kingdom that was to be, uh, be fulfilled ultimately through his ascension back to the Father and the bringing of his church to the earth. So prepare for your first conversation. Think about just having possibly some snacks, maybe something to drink, or maybe you're going to meet at a coffee shop somewhere. Be open about how important it is to have life-giving, Christ-centered relationships and how you've been praying. You know, I've been praying that God would put some people in my life, that he would put me in position to give and to receive in relationships from other people. And decide if you're simply going to read a text and discuss it. If you're going to engage in a Bible study, decide how many times you're going to meet. I think six to eight times is probably really, really good. And keep in mind, it's not so important what you do as why you do it. God will refine your approach over time. I want to challenge you, focus more on relationships than you focus on results. Okay? So we've prayed, we've watched, we've listened. We've identified 
Um, and we have invited and prepared, and now we're going to engage. That's the fourth step. God's answered your prayers. He's answered the prayers of others. You've invited other people to participate. You've prepared your group by establishing some clear expectations, and now it's time to engage in community. It's exactly what happened in the ministry of Jesus. We read earlier in Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, at once they left their nets and they followed him. Now, why six to eight weeks? It seems kind of odd, is it? Making disciples a lifetime? Well, yes and no. It could be that as you engage in some discipleship-making groups that you travel with some people for much, much longer. And I know you have connect groups in this church. You have Bible classes in this congregation. And so there's going to be some longer-term relationships that you're going to be able to dwell into. But I think there's also something special and something unique about traveling together for a season. And there's a method to the madness I'll get to here in just a second. But let me show you how God can work in this. Two Sundays ago, um, I was sitting over here, and uh, I got a text. And I, I usually have my phone on Do Not Disturb almost, almost all the time on Sunday mornings. For some reason, I had it open. I just happened to glance down. And this was a text that I, I, I received, literally sitting right up here. And this was from a friend of mine many, many years ago. And he said, I met someone yesterday who reminds me of you. I am forever grateful for you and your help and love as you walked with me through some of the darkest days of my life. I don't think I did much at all with that brother except listen. I just listened. We prayed together. Uh, but God has done some amazing thing in his life. And it had nothing to do with me being a preacher. Nothing. Nothing. I was just a disciple walking with another guy who wanted to be a disciple. The fifth step is to release. And notice I did not say it's the final step. It's not the final step. It's the fifth step. And in our context, I think this is expanding the kingdom. Your challenge is to begin preparing the members of your group to trust God to do through them what you trusted him to do through you. And here's the deal, and this may be the most important thing of all. We are not making disciples of us. We are making disciples of Jesus. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Have you ever noticed the action verbs in those two verses? Go, make baptize, teach. And Jesus is an action verb all by himself in this passage. I am. I am. I'm with you and not just with you temporarily. I'm with you always. So look at this five-step process again, quickly. Listen and watch. Recruit and invite. Prepare. What are we going to study? How are we going to spend our time? Engage. And then after five or six weeks, release. And then repeat. I would recommend with some Sabbath time in between, 
because you need to feed yourself as well. It's hard to pour into others if you're not being poured into. Does that make sense? And I want to understand, I want you to understand, I'm not suggesting forming a discipleship group is the only way to make disciples. But it's a good way to begin making disciples. So, for your first round, I would say start with people that you know. Don't invite someone that you don't know to your first group. Let that be your pilot group. Maybe your next group could be a couple of people that you know and possibly one or two people that you don't know. And then possibly in your third group, it's only one person that you know and two or three people that you don't know well but you want to get to know. These are all people, all relationships that result from your prayers, from listening to God, watching where God is at work, and being convicted in your heart that you are being led to others and others are being led to you so that we all can be led closer to the Lord. Use whatever media you want. Put a note on Facebook. Hey, I'm starting this little six-week journey and I'm looking for some folks to join me. Invite family members. You know, one of the greatest mission fields is our own family. You know that? Our own family members. Tell your neighbors. If a hundred people say no, but out of those hundred, let's say one says yes. I think Jesus had something to say about that. Didn't he? Rejoicing over the one. So don't be discouraged. Now, if you were thinking at this point, I would never do that. If you're also thinking, not only would I never do that, I'm not even going to support something like that. Well, if that sentiment is widespread, then I just want to let you know, as a congregation, you are in a heap of trouble. Because, first of all, we're not doing what our Lord and Savior commanded us to do. Second, if there are no conversions, ultimately there will be no congregation. Now, don't get me wrong. The church will always stand. God is going to make sure of that. But a local church that is not committed to making disciples will not be around long. Now surely, and sometimes, God uses a church for a season instead of for a lifetime. However, disciple-making is not seasonal. It's our calling. We're constantly looking for opportunities to invite others to grow in Christ, to serve in love, and to be equipped for life so that, hopefully, prayerfully, someday, they can equip others for life. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. I'd like for us to stand together, and I'd like for us to sing together this morning.